0: I have you loud and clear. Hello, hello, hello. Hello.
1: Hello. Hello. Welcome. (laughs) Science.
0: And that is
2: to say, physics. Medicine. Nature.
1: Space. Time. Brain. Life. The universe. Hello, Naked listeners. Today, we're celebrating our birthday. It's 15 years since the Naked Scientists were born, and so we're going behind the scenes of science and media to uncover how scientific discoveries are made
3: The three people who shared the Nobel Prize were James Watson, Francis Crick and Maurice Wilkins.
1: What goes on behind the scenes in our own newsroom? I like to get dinosaurs in there as
4: often as possible.
1: And how the internet is changing everything and not necessarily for the good.
5: Is social media changing content in a way that's unhealthy for democracy?
1: I'm Greer Jackson and this is The Naked Scientist.
5: The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKFast.co.uk.
1: First things first though, what is the nature of science and progression? Often you hear about this breakthrough and that discovery, but actually science doesn't really work like that. In fact, most science isn't groundbreaking at all. It tends to be more incremental, building a picture, pixel by pixel, to colour in our understanding of the world. And a good example of this building block approach is genetics. Hey. Good morning, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Great. I have a present for you. Oh, wow, are these pea, <laughs> pea shoots? This is great. Where did you get these? I'm glad you recognised their pea plants and yeah. not brought along to
3: some food you <laughs> or yeah. <laughs> was, uh, the, I'm a terrible gardener. I, like Everything I touch dies.
1: Meet Patrick Short. He's doing his PhD in genetics at Cambridge.
3: This is actually probably the first time I've uh, closely studied a, <laughs> a pea plant. I wish, uh, I wish I was more of a pea plant expert.
1: So can I start by asking you... Why are we talking about peas, I yeah. suppose? I mean, I know, I know I know why I'm talking about peas, <laughs> but I'm just thinking no one else will know why we're talking about peas.
3: We're talking about genetics, and uh, for most people, the timeline of where genetics really begins is with uh, a monk called Gregor Mendel. So he grew up in, uh, I, it's modern-day Czech Republic, but the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and he was the first one to really study uh, this idea of inheritance.
0: By this
1: time, Darwin and Wallace had come along and said new species evolved via natural selection, but not how. And this is where Gregory Mendel fits in.
3: At the time, they had some idea of inheritance. They knew that things were passed on, and I think the dominant model was a kind of blending thing. If you had white flowers and red flowers, they became pink flowers. But he was one of the first to really systematically study... Uh, this phenomenon, and he did it in his garden with pea plants.
1: It was something like 36 varieties that he studied for eight years, and yeah. he sort of cross-bred them, didn't he, to yeah, work exactly.
3: out
1: how they were changing colour and how their leaves changed in length or fatness. Right. I mean, it's quite a meticulous bit of work.
3: Yeah, well, so apparently, if I remember correctly, he originally wanted to study animal breeding, but the monastery wasn't particularly comfortable with him studying animal sex, so they said, why don't you just focus on the plants? And eventually he stumbled on something really fascinating
1: and what was that
3: yeah, so he I think his main two contributions are this idea of the sort of segregation of alleles, so if you have uh, you can you can essentially study sort of the first generation second generation third generation, and you see some that uh, that are dominant, so meaning if dad has brown eyes and mom has blue eyes, then the child is going to have brown eyes, uh, but if you keep watching, then the blue allele actually doesn't disappear. It sticks around. So then if you go another generation down, you actually see children with blue eyes pop out again. He kind of was the first to pinpoint this idea that some traits are dominant and others are recessive. And you have this sort of dance or this balance over time of these things being passed on.
1: The one thing that I find pretty staggering is that he worked out not only do you get one gene from mum and one gene from dad, and then the A, that there are dominant and recessive genes, but he managed to work out in a pea plant which ones were going to be dominant and yeah. recessive. That's insane to me.
3: Yeah, it's good. It's uh, And it, at its most basic level, it's fractions and it's maths. But yeah, it's it's simple, but it's really I'm sure it was very difficult at the time for him to actually wrap his head around. Between the time of uh, Gregor Mendel around the 1860s to Around the mid-1900s, there were a lot of incremental changes, like science always works in small steps.
1: For instance, in 1866, Ernest Haeckel theorised that the stuff of inheritance would be found in the nucleus of a cell. Three years later, the young Swiss physician, Frederick Miescher, had shown the stuff in the centre of a cell nucleus was nucleic acid, one of the building blocks of DNA. Things were moving pretty fast, and by 1944, DNA was determined to be the thing that held this genetic material. Lots of small incremental steps, but...
3: Sometimes there are really big leaps, and one of those big leaps was in 1953 when Watson and Crick, uh, with the help of Rosalind Franklin, published their structure of DNA. So this is the double helix that we're all familiar with. Uh, And I don't know if you realise it, but actually just around the corner up here is the Eagle Pub in Cambridge, where it's said that uh, Watson and Crick announced their discovery of the double helix.
1: Patrick says it's said that because recently, well, Watson changed his mind and said that actually he didn't announce the discovery in the Eagle Pub. Nonetheless, we went over to have a gander at the big blue plaque outside. Would you like to do the honours and read the sign?
3: Yeah, sure. DNA Double Helix, 1953, The Secret of Life. For decades, the eagle was the local pub for scientists from the nearby Cavendish Laboratory. It was here on February 28, 1953, that Francis Crick and James Watson first announced their discovery of how DNA carries genetic information. Unveiled by James Watson on the 25th of April, 2003.
1: It's a beautiful blue plaque.
3: It is. As everything in science, we recognize a few people, but but there's always tons of researchers involved. So the three people who shared the Nobel Prize were James Watson, Francis Crick, and Maurice Wilkins. And it was Maurice who was the one who sort of pushed this idea from the beginning and ended up kind of convincing Watson and Crick to jump on with him. And then, of course, you've got Rosalind Franklin, who did a lot of the work on the x-ray crystallography and diffraction that was really the sort of catalyst for this whole thing to take off. And so it's quite amazing. And and I'm sure there were students and researchers and all sorts of people that were there along the way questioning assumptions and coming up with ideas. And after all this time, the, the structure was discovered right here in Cambridge
1: understanding the structure as this double helix what did that enable how did that improve our knowledge
3: we have this idea of inheritance and and the most important thing and probably what was on everybody's mind was figuring out how do we how do we read this stuff so we know it's a a catalog or a instruction manual or a recipe book but we can't really understand its secrets until we figure out a way to manipulate it understand it see what's happening and From a chemist's point of view or from a a biotechnologist's point of view, knowing the structure of this molecule makes it a lot easier to manipulate and and design technology to actually better understand it. So this discovery paved the way for everything that we've been able to do in the last 60 or 70 years to, uh, to understand this promise of genetics.
1: So while scientists now knew the structure of DNA... They didn't actually know the code, the letters or base pairs that pair together to form a gene or a word, if you're using that analogy. This was found out in the 60s, and then the first entire piece of DNA was sequenced by Fred Sanger in 1977. It was a bacterium, though, so naturally human DNA was next on the agenda, but not for another 25 years or so.
2: Platform 8 for the full
1: A train ride later, and Patrick and I found ourselves in that promised land.
3: All right, so we're at the Sanger Institute, which is in Hinkston, just outside of Cambridge. Uh, So you may be familiar with the Human Genome Project. This is a big uh, international effort to sequence the human genome. And incrementally, we figured out more and more high-throughput ways to actually take this molecule and convert it to some sort of digital information that then we could analyze. So Fred Sanger uh, worked with a funding body in the U.S., the National Institute of Health, as well as the Wellcome Trust, and they opened the Sanger Institute where they did, I think, actually more than a third of the total sequencing of the project worldwide.
1: Mm-hmm. And when you say sequencing, what do you mean?
3: If we think about the genome as a recipe book, so Watson and Crick in some ways kind of showed us what this recipe book looked like And sequencing is what allows us to read the letters. So at the point of sequencing, you still don't know what it means. You just have a string of information. Uh, And then the next job, once you've actually got the technology to sequence the first person, then you start to understand what are the patterns in the data. Uh, What do these letters mean? How does that information get transferred is, is sort of the next step. But you have to be able to read it first.
1: And that is where this happened.
3: Yes, that's right. Since then, the Institute's been involved in a 1,000 Genomes Project, as well as a project that's going on right now to sequence 100,000 people here in the UK, so it keeps scaling, uh, and it's always been sort of at the forefront of this genetic technology.
1: I've mentioned about 10 findings in over 150 years. Literally a whistle-stop tour, I can assure you. On Wikipedia, it lists 72 distinct events under the History of Genetics page. I imagine there are many, many more incremental findings that were published as papers in journals that contributed to our understanding of genetics today and tomorrow. That's the big picture though, so let's zoom in a little. What do scientists actually do from day to day? Say hello to Professor Stephen Curry, biologist at Imperial College and a blogger for The Guardian. He'll be sharing with us the ins and outs of his day.
6: The radio clicks on at 6am and I lie in bed snoozing for about 45 minutes. I find that's the least problematic way to absorb the Today programme on Radio 4.
5: Good morning. It's six o'clock on Thursday. This is Today with Justin
6: Webb and Nick Robbins. I shower and gobble a bowl of cereal. A bus, a train, a tube, and an hour later I'm in my office at the university, attacking email. At 10.15, I meet my PhD student for coffee. It's a semi-social occasion. Normally we chat about weekend stuff, but today we're discussing the final segment of our thesis. She's almost ready to submit, and the conversation turns to the next chapter in her life, how to stay in academia. Forging a career in research is a competitive business and carries big risks. Only about one in 200 PhD students ends up as a professor. My student has two options, really. Apply for a fellowship, which would give her a measure of independence, or for a postdoctoral position to work, for now, in someone else's lab. Fellowship and grant applications are arduous work. You've got to fill out lengthy forms, box after box describing your past achievements and the merits of your proposed research and explaining how it will impact society and so on. There's a fine balance to be struck between putting forward an exciting but risky project and reassuring the funder that the plan of investigation is feasible so that their money won't be wasted. It's a tricky game. And fresh-faced postdocs need to be prepared to play that game over and over. It was hard enough when I started over 20 years ago, but the competition for funding is even fiercer now. And that's before you start thinking about the pressure to publish in leading journals, because that is, unfortunately, how most research is judged. Our systems of assessment have too much emphasis on where rather than what you publish. This pressure puts young scientists like my PhD student on a treadmill almost from day one. A former postdoc of mine once described academic culture as a pissing contest. I wonder whether my student will be able to sustain her evident enjoyment in research. I don't have a solution for her just now, but I suspect that people like me, the old guard, have to do more to ensure young scientists get the recognition they deserve.
1: Sounds like a tricky business, doesn't it? Say, though, you have been one of these lucky scientists to get your funding. Now what?
7: So after I have received my grant, I guess the first thing that would happen is a big sigh of relief. Obviously, when it happens, it's amazing. And when it doesn't happen, it's, a, it's an enormous disappointment. And then, uh, and then of course, the, the hard work begins. So my name is Sam Bajati. I graduated from medical school in 2006, but we mainly do clinical work. So my main scientific sort of career was my PhD, which was 2011 till 2014. And then I've restarted with research uh, in March of this year.
1: What drew you back to research?
7: Oh, I love sitting here and, and looking at my data. It's a, it's a phenomenal place to be.
1: We met for a coffee at the Sanger Institute to go through what a good experiment means. And Sam although recently returned to research, has published around 50 papers in prestigious journals like Nature, Science and the British Medical Journal.
7: Classically, one would say a good experiment starts with an excellent question, but I think in our field of science where where we do genomics, the first bit is to design that screening part of the experiment really well.
1: Can I think of it as screening, just finding those people who have, say, bowel cancer, if that's what you're looking at, and then within those select people, looking for what mutations they have in common that might cause this cancer?
7: Perhaps we could talk through a specific experiment that we've published in the past. I think that might just make it easier. So one of the various tumour types that I was interested in is something called chondroblastoma. It's a very rare tumour that is mostly benign and occurs in in the sort of ends of bones. The, the problem with chondroblastoma is it tends to come back and it tends to destroy bones. So although it isn't a lethal cancer, it's, it's, it's quite a debilitating cancer. So I was interested in that tumour and I wanted to know what drives these tumours. So what we did is we collaborated with a pathologist, someone who collects tumour samples, Adrian Flanagan. We extracted the DNA. We also obtained normal tissue from the patients. And what that then allowed us to do is we've got these tumours and then we sequence every single piece of information of the genome and compare the tumour to the normal tissue and the difference between tumour and normal tissue that makes the cancer. Does it make sense? That would be the screening experiment and then in this particular case we found a single mutation that literally defines this tumours.
1: In some ways it sounded like quite an easy this is the gene yeah. but it's not always like that it's much more complicated and, and nuanced. So how do you sequence all this data?
7: So we extract DNA And that goes onto these sequences, and they read in every single base of the human genome, so all three billion bases, but not only once, but several times over. So they generate all this data, and that's a real challenge in, in, in our experiments, because you're overwhelmed with data. So if you think, what, 60, so 150 billion pieces of information that you need to process, obviously you can't do that on your computer you need enormous storage space, and you need enormously powerful computers to be able to process it.
1: Sam took me over to where these enormous computers are kept, and to be honest, I didn't really know what to say about it. Fortunately, Sam had a few
7: reflections of his own. That looks. It looks cool.
1: It does look cool. It does look cool. Yeah, does look
7: cool. Like out of a spaceship. <laughs> So we are standing in front of the data centre, so we are looking for a window and behind that window are a lot of wires, a lot of black boxes and quite a lot of sort of green and red lights.
1: It looks like a series of almost like computer hard drives stacked on top of each other with lots of wires and lots of lights. It looks very complicated and it's row after row after row row, of these things. How many of your tumour sequences would this hold? Or is that even unfathomable in terms of mathematics off the top of your head?
7: I have absolutely no idea how big (laughs) this computer farm is now because it constantly grows.
1: The thing is, you've got millions of bits of data. And so finding something that's statistically relevant is...
7: Like finding a needle in the haystack, in a way.
1: And that's why you need the statistical analysis.
7: That's why we do need the statistical analysis, indeed. Because mainly what you get when you do these experiments, you mainly end up with noise. So the the main art is in getting rid of the noise and finding the truth. And finding the truth involves a lot of very intricate sort of review of raw data, but also doing further validation experiments to show that what you think you found is actually true.
1: So you've got your results, and then I guess the next bit is to write up those results, to have a discussion and compare it with other bits of the literature. Who does what? If there are multiple authors on a paper, do you fight over the last word or do you like hash things out together or do you give each other segments? How does that process come together?
7: So I think different labs do things in very different ways and, and our lab has a particular style whereby one person writes a draft and that then is a basis for further discussion and then it does come down to battling sort of every word and, and expression. I mean, we've got, I don't know, the people that I've written with, some have a very sort of bloomy, sort of fruity style of writing, others are very matter-of-fact, and it has to be absolutely consistent with the truth. So whatever we say, we've got this sort of um, rule in our heads, we have to be able to stand up in a court of law and defend every single sentence, every single word, an expression that we used in our paper.
1: How long does that take? I imagine it, it takes some time to, if you're fighting over every last word.
7: It depends. So I I would say, I mean, the quickest paper I have written was perhaps about four weeks. And the longest paper is the paper I'm currently hacking away at. And I've been hacking away at it for about five months.
1: (laughs) How does that make you feel?
7: (laughs) Uh, I just want to get rid of it. I mean, you get to a point where you don't care anymore whether it gets published or not because you just want to to get it out of your life.
1: (laughs) Okay, and I suppose the next step is what sending it, selecting a few journals perhaps and sending it off to them?
7: We think about the journal first. I mean, you you think about who who your target audience is and, and what the sort of journal is you think you may want to target, and then you also have a realistic sort of review of your data and say, you know, is it important enough or of enough impact to go into this or that journal?
1: This is The Naked Scientist, with me, Greta Jackson, and today, a journey into science. How do we get from a theory to a discovery? And then, how does it reach your ears? Hello. Hello. I'm here to meet someone at AAAA. Right, can have you? you Keith Smith. Next, though, you and I are heading into the world of publishing and peer review, where a paper like Sam's would be put to the test by someone like Keith Smith.
8: I'm one of the research editors for Science Magazine. Science Magazine is one of the biggest and most prestigious scientific journals in the world, and we publish both news and research from all areas of science, looking for really the top quality, big breakthrough stuff. Uh, So the magazine has around a million readers.
1: Impressive stuff. No pressure then for people like you.
8: Yes, that's that's part of the, the fun of the job.
1: The other part of Keith's job is to oversee something called the peer review process.
8: Peer review is the kind of quality control around scientific papers. It's a method of ensuring that what is reported in the scientific literature passes the kind of basic requirements of the way that it's reported, that it fits all the standards of publication that ensure that what they've done is a good piece of work. And that's what the peer review process is supposed to ensure by having other researchers in the field check that they've followed the standards.
1: Talk me through what happens. A manuscript lands on your desk. What's your first port of call?
8: Whenever we get a new manuscript, I do an initial assessment just to make sure that this is a suitable topic for our journal, that it's not obviously wrong or or crazy or whatever, And, and every journal does get those submissions. But then we will send it out to referees for peer review and ask them to comment on the manuscript.
1: And guess who receives these manuscripts for comment? Stephen Curry, of course.
6: Caffeinated and back in my office, I gossip for 10 minutes with a colleague before making a start on reading a manuscript that I've been asked to review by an academic journal. This is the peer review process, and it's supposed to provide quality control. My eye stumbles along the first few lines of stilted prose in the paper's introduction, and my heart sinks. This is going to be a long haul. I steel myself by remembering why I do this. I'm not paid or credited for the hours it takes to review the 20 or 30 papers and grant applications that land on my desk each year. It's a quid pro quo. After all, I expect others to review my papers, though I hope I don't give them as much grief as these guys seem to have in store for me. My editorial hand stops on every other line of the manuscript to correct or to comment in exasperation. The peer review process isn't perfect, but it works well enough most of the time, providing a useful opportunity for authors to clarify or improve their papers before publication. But there are growing concerns about the inability of peer review to catch all errors. Some are just honest mistakes, but in other cases the reviewers are fooled by outright fraud. Infamously, Some authors have even created fake email addresses so that they would be sent their own papers for review. And the bad behaviour is becoming more common. Between 1975 and 2012, there's been a tenfold increase in the numbers of scientific articles retracted after publication. In over 70% of cases, the retractions were due to scientific misconduct of one type or another. It's unfathomable to me that researchers would write up results they know not to be true. But scientists are human too, and this is the dark side of the ubiquitous pressures to publish. It's a complex problem, but at least it seems to be attracting more attention. As a community, we need to recalibrate our incentives to reward good, reliable science, and not simply publication in top-tier journals. But back to the manuscript at hand, which, after a few tortuous hours, I've now finished. My initial assessment? Bloody awful. But I know I need to wait a day or two before writing my report. Time for my inner nitpicker to calm down.
8: Well, the reviewer's reports will always be read by the editor, before being sent to the authors,
1: Keith Smith again from the journal Science.
8: There are various reasons why we need to do that. We need to check that there aren't personal attacks or, or, or inappropriate things in there. For example, but the editor will often have consulted several referees, then maybe two or three, and will need to weigh up the. Uh, opinions for, from the different referees who might disagree with each other or might you might have one referee says this paper is too long it needs to be cut down and another referee who says this paper doesn't have enough details in it you need to add more method and obviously you need to balance those things we use uh, at science a science a system called cross review which is showing the reports to all the other referees and asking them to essentially check each other but those are really new systems that are coming into effect. Most journals still rely upon the editor to do that collating.
1: And you mentioned checking reports for things like inappropriate behaviour. Is that common? And perhaps can you give me an example of where that's happened?
8: It's not common at all. I've been an editor for scientific journals for five or six years now and I've only seen it come up twice. And that's in all the thousands of papers I've handled in that time. There are uh, occasions where somebody will put something in there that suggests they have not assessed the paper on the basis of the science within it but instead they've assessed the paper on the basis of who wrote it. There was an example in in the media a few months ago of a referees report which was sent to a group of female authors which said in it I suggest that you add a, a man to your author list in order to balance this paper and that was clearly not acceptable again and how in that case it got past the editor and to be fair the editor resigned but that's the sort of thing that we are checking for on a very very basic level but I'm pleased to say it is very very rare and if we do see anything like that we immediately discard the report and get a different referee to look at it.
1: And we've talked a little bit about sort of the dark side of peer review but is that the only sort of problem you get in peer review or are there other things that need fixing or improving upon?
8: So peer review is something that everybody agrees is not perfect. There is a lot of debate as to what exactly can be done to improve it but some of the things that we need to watch out for are referees who have a conflict of interest for example. If If I've asked a referee to assess a paper and it turns out that they're working on a very similar piece of research themselves and they have it in process at another journal at the same time, they're trying to get their paper out first, then they might be tempted to deliberately slow the process down, and that is a real danger. We do ask referees to declare any possible conflicts of interest, but not everybody does it. Sometimes you do find out, but often only too late.
1: Although not perfect, peer review is in place for a reason. It does provide a level of quality control. But what could be done to improve it? Keith suggested more transparency, in particular making raw data available, so referees can also check that too. But my favourite solution involves an award. After all, everyone likes a certificate, hey?
8: There has to be an incentive to referees to ensure that they are doing a good job and that they're doing it in a timely fashion. At the moment, if a referee is late with their report, the worst that happens to them is they get an annoyed email from the editor, because the only person who knows who they are is the editor, and they don't suffer any damage to their reputation, for example, uh, if they become known as being a slow referee. Now, I don't think we should be Punishing referees in any way. They do this work for free and it's a community service, but perhaps we could be rewarding referees who do a good job. We could be, for example, at the end of the year on the journal website, we could be saying, We especially thank these 20 referees who did a very good job for us this year. And that would encourage people to make sure they're doing a a good refereeing job and that they're reviewing papers in a way that they would want their own papers to be refereed at other journals.
1: You know what? I think Keith's onto something there. It's the Naked Scientists with me, Grey Jackson. Today we're voyaging into the wonderful world of science. So far, we've heard about how science works, but not how it works its way into your ears.
0: And so now our first port of call is the press office. So to get something from a scientific journal into maybe a mainstream newspaper, that's where we step in.
1: That's Emma Smith.
0: She's a science information manager at Cancer Research UK. Emma and our Katani sat down for a etter about how research reaches us journalists. Part of that falls down to our team, and most of us are very highly trained scientists ourselves. A lot of us have PhDs, we're doctors, so we understand the basic fundamentals of research. That's not to say that we understand every single scientific paper, I won't even pretend that, especially when it's something not in my field. But I can understand the fundamentals, and then often what we'll do is we'll call the researcher themselves and ask them to explain it to us in their own words, so we can get not only the the information, the key findings, but also some of the broader context that the background how it fits in with other research why it's new and what its potential importance could be
9: so you've worked out the story what's important what you want to tell the public then how does that get into the hands of journalists or say the naked scientist radio
0: show or a newspaper or a website So one of the first things we'll do is is write a press release and then the press team, this is their specific role, is to take that press release, the information in it and pitch it to journalists. So they'll send it to them via email or or a quick telephone call to explain the key findings and try and get the journalists interested in the science. So that's basically the, the process. You've got scientists doing the research, they write a scientific paper,
9: you write a press release and then it gets into the papers. What other ways are there that organisations like Cancer Research UK, scientists, research funders, are there other
0: ways that they're getting scientific information out to the public? Of course, we don't just rely on our press releases. We've also got an award-winning blog, um, which we use to explain scientific findings in a little bit more detail and with a bit more of a narrative than than a paper can normally cover. Uh, We also cover other people's research in the news feeds. um, We produce video content, animations, all this kind of extra material that helps explain the science that we're funding.
9: Increasingly, we're seeing a lot of organisations communicating directly with the public through things like social media, things like Facebook, Twitter... Other social media platforms.
0: Does Cancer Research UK do that and how do you do it? We have Twitter accounts, Facebook account and absolutely people are very welcome to, to leave comments there and ask us questions. I actually think it it has made a huge difference because not only can people ask us things and get a quick reply, but also other people who might be interested can see that question and see the answer. Whereas before it was much more of a closed system. So somebody, if they wanted to ask us a question, would have to write a letter, put it in the post, wait weeks for a reply, and then nobody else would see it. So I think this brings about a whole new level of transparency and communications with our supporters, which I think is a great thing. Do you think people would be surprised to know how much you do work with journalists to get good stories out? It's really important that we have very good relationships with journalists and also that they trust us. That that trusting relationship is absolutely vital in the work we do. It can sometimes mean the difference between a journalist publishing or pulling a story. And very often they will use Cancer Research UK as that balancing voice the voice of expertise to to give a balanced argument and and to bring you know some fact and some truth into maybe an otherwise slightly over exaggerated piece and come on what's what's the worst
9: story you've seen what's the one that made you absolutely slam your head in the desk and go really they're
0: saying this there have been so many that's that's a hard call I think one of my favorites was going to the toilet in the night gives you cancer and it was actually it was interesting research about circadian rhythms and disrupting sleep patterns and what effect that has you know, on your hormones and chemicals that your body produce. Somehow it got turned into giving you cancer, which is always one of my favourites. Well, I'm very glad to
1: know that spending a penny in the night won't give me cancer. Now then, Emma would probably upload her press releases to her website or ping around an email to various outlets. And that's where us producers come in.
4: Hi, I'm Georgia. I'm one of the producers here at The Naked Scientists.
1: There's three of us producers. There's Georgia, me, and also Connie.
10: I've been here oh, just over a year.
1: Week in, week out, we three are the minions behind the scenes that pull the programme together, from coming up with a theme for a show to finding and booking guests and also going out and recording reports. But we also set up the news interviews for Chris and Kat. Not to be dramatic or anything, but we have three short days to organise anywhere up to six top-notch interviews. And so, come Monday morning, the clock is already ticking.
10: Okay, so we get in on a Monday and we tend to look at two main websites which give us all the embargoed news. So we kind of get a sneak peek, so we're there when the news breaks. There'll be some papers, especially on Nature, which don't have press releases, but mostly we're looking at the press releases Uh, to give you that first kind of eye into the story because a paper title doesn't always give you that much of an idea of what you're looking for.
1: A circular inclusion with inhomogeneous, non-slip, imperfect interface in harmonic materials. Hmm.
10: And when we
4: think about what's important, what do people need to know, we have this kind of mantra, it's health, wealth and heart.
10: Things that affect our health, obviously, we all care about so much, for
4: example. As the US
2: declares its first homegrown cases of Zika in Florida, we've learned that up to 90 million people, including over one and a half million childbearing women, may be infected across the Americas as the initial wave of the Zika epidemic unfolds.
10: Then we have wealth things that hit your pocket and in science actually there's quite a lot of stuff which is just incredibly expensive. This month technology
1: giant Apple have launched an all new digital wallet called Apple Pay where you can now
10: pay And then for heart groceries. is usually my favourite category, it's just the things that make you laugh, we call them and finally stories quite often, you know in the news where they say and finally why penguins don't get cold feet. I like to get dinosaurs in there as often as possible. <laughs> That's the unfinalies. I love unfinalies.
1: Right, are you guys ready for a news meeting?
10: We might pitch three or four ideas each. Because there's a lot of good science, and if we went through all of it, it takes forever. What's next? The producer for that week picks the ones for us to go forward with. We all go away, and we've got our stories that we need to look up, and so we need to contact the scientists and make a research call. Hear it straight from their mouths.
1: Hi, is that Professor Stephen Curry?
4: Yeah, good, how are you? Find out a bit more about it and set up interviews with them.
2: I, I worked out the other day, I'd probably interviewed about three and a half, four thousand people since I started doing these programmes.
4: And we get um, about a 20-minute interview with them, and um, this is then cut down to about four or five minutes, um, which is often the hardest thing. What do you choose to go in the programme? Hopefully, by Thursday morning, we have all of our interviews And then once we've done that, we write up a cue, which is something that introduces the interview.
9: Connie Allback spoke with University of Cape Town researcher Claire Spottiswood, who's been out to Mozambique to study the phenomenon.
4: (laughs) We send in the audio for the managing editor to decide the running order for the programme.
2: OK, I'm Chris Smith and I have the dubious pleasure of running The Naked Scientist and being the person who set it up in the first place. In order to choose an order for the stories in the news, we have to be thinking about several things. Foremost is, what's our lead story? Because the first thing people want to hear is the thing that's going to grab their attention, it's going to make a big difference to their life or the lives of many other people around the world, or it's going to change the way that we view the world as a human race. So if you take Ebola as a good example. This has been around for 40 or 50 years since it was first discovered. People had largely dismissed this as a tropical disease and not really of much importance, apart from to those people who, a handful of them each year, were catching it. Suddenly, it begins to spread.
9: This week, the lowdown on Ebola. We talk to the people in Sierra Leone who are trying to fight the outbreak, a new vaccine trial that's just kicked off, and we hear how it's not just humans that are affected by Ebola, but our closest primate cousins too.
1: That's the lead story, though. How do you choose what comes next?
2: We don't want to dwell too much on one interviewer. We don't want to dwell on too much of one subject. And so we try and create texture and movement in the news to keep people interested all the way through and provide them with a good snapshot of what's going on across the whole scientific arena. What we then do is that we get together and we write a script which uses all of those cues those written introductions and links everything together and the two presenters often it's Kat Arney and myself but other members of the team also take part we will then record those links in the studio and then we compile the programme by taking the interviews we've already done and putting them within those links.
1: And ta-da! The Naked Scientist programme is complete well, sort of. It goes through a series of checks and then is published on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever you use for your fine ears.
2: I think my favourite bit of the entire process is when I walk out of the studio on a Sunday night and you can say, that was a blinking good programme, I really enjoy doing it and few I know I've got tomorrow when I don't have to do any interviews.
1: <laughs> now, that's what the news is like for us naked scientists. But what's it like for the interviewee? We return to Stephen Curry again.
6: After lunch, I head over to the students' union to judge a cake competition. The standards not quite bake-off, but the students are full of enthusiasm for baking and, gratifyingly, for their studies. One even tells me how much he enjoyed my protein crystallography lectures. This is a far-from-universal reaction to material that many of the students find challenging. Or, as they put it, boring. On my way back to the office, I realise I've missed Alok Jha's Radio 4 documentary on scientific integrity.
11: I've been reporting on science and scientists for more than 15 years – it's an exhilarating experience, whether watching science. Scientists... I was
6: keen to hear it because I'd been interviewed for the programme back in January by Alec and his producer, Faisal Farouk.
11: I went to visit Professor Stephen Curry at Imperial
6: College London to find out what it's like on the front line of biology.
11: Stephen, how are
6: you? Hi, Alec, it's good to see you again. OK, well, my lab is mostly a structural biology lab, so we're interested in the structures of um, various different protein molecules. And the particular area we work in is in RNA viruses, so things like norovirus, the winter vomiting bug, or foot and mouth disease virus, which are actually, these viruses are related to one another in genetic terms. We'd spent over an hour talking about how the pressures on researchers can sometimes pervert what is reported in the scientific literature. Philosophers of science would teach you that, you know, a hypothesis can only be falsified, and what scientists should set out to do is to falsify a hypothesis. Well, in reality, if you come up with a hypothesis, it's because some of your existing data has told you that that's probably a good idea, and you then do experiments to try and generate more data that will hopefully test and support the hypothesis. You know, if you thought of a brilliant idea, you want it to be true. So the reality of scientific thinking might not
11: exactly comply with the philosophical ideals. And
6: that can cause... It's a good documentary. Alok has dug deep into the topic by talking to a lot of interesting people, including a Dutch psychology researcher, Diederik Stapel, who'd been caught fabricating his data. My only beef with it is that much of what I had to say has ended up on the cutting room floor. I should have been pithier, I tell myself. But I'm not really put out. I'm happy to contribute to these sorts of programmes. Most scientists rely on public funding of one form or another, And to me, that brings with it the responsibility to give a good account, in both senses of the word, of what we do with it. Some of my colleagues are more wary of talking to journalists, moaning privately of their tendency to sensationalise. But the only effective counter to that is talking to them. I've had my own run-ins, to be sure. I've taken a number of journalists to task on my blog for over-egging a story or for not taking enough trouble to get the facts straight. We've all seen the articles on miracle cures for cancer, or MS, or whatever. But it's not always the journalists to blame. A study from the British Medical Journal found that press releases in health-related research were the primary source of inaccuracies. So universities, and their scientists, are sometimes guilty of overstating the significance of their work. We're back to the problem of needing to recalibrate our incentives to reward good, reliable science. That's not to say that we shouldn't shout about the really exciting stuff, the Higgs boson, or the development of genome editing, or in my case, work showing how norovirus replication gets kick-started in infected cells. But we also have to be honest about the fact that most scientific advances are relatively small. Even so, those smaller stories can be interesting and are worth telling, not least so that people can see that science is mostly a rather ordinary business. There can also be a way in to important debates that deserve to be aired in public on the future of gene editing in humans, for example, or three-parent babies, or artificial intelligence. Science needs debate and direction to help us think through the ethics and morality surrounding future research. I stare at the photo of my children on the desk, Wondering what the world of science will be like when they reach my age. I pack my bag and try not to think about the train journey home, where I'll be stuffed in with other sweaty commuters on this muggy summer's day. I console myself. It's been a long day, and tomorrow will be different. And then I remember that tomorrow will be different. I've cleared the whole day for marking exams.
1: Sounds like fun, doesn't it? (laughs) Radio is one thing, though, but it's not the only thing. With the invention of the internet, smartphones and social media, the landscape of news is drastically changing. And some are worried about what the implications of that may be.
5: So my name's Nick Newman. I'm a digital strategist and I'm a research associate at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at Oxford University
1: you have quite an impressive CV because I was being nosy and having a look on your website. It reads, Nick was a founding member of the BBC News website, leading international coverage as world editor. As head of product development for BBC News, he helped introduce innovations such as blogs and podcasting and on-demand video. That's quite something.
5: Yeah, no, we, well, the founding of BBC News Online was very exciting, but I did 15 years before that working in radio and television. And I uh, yeah, was part of the team that helped set up the online website. Uh, My main focus was international news, which I did for a number of years and then went change to to looking at technology and working with software engineers and designers uh, and did that for about sort of 10 years. It's almost like two careers within the BBC.
1: Yeah, quite all the things. So you must be well placed to tell me, well, what news was like 10 years ago or so before we had the invention of mobile phones and really social media.
5: Well, news has been uh, right at the sort of centre of the digital storm and things were very different 10 or 15 years ago. There were a relatively small number of gatekeepers and most people access news through those gatekeepers, so newspapers and television. And what's happened with digital is there's been this explosion in media, but there's also been a convergence. So it's very hard to tell now what a, what a newspaper is. So pretty much everything has changed and, and the driver behind that has been the internet.
1: I wonder if we can take some of these information. Emerging trends one by one, if you like. So, obviously, mobile has been a, a big one. How has that changed how we are accessing news and also our behaviour, I suppose, of how we look at news?
5: What's happened with mobile is that it's changed the time at which people access news. They can access it any time through the day, um, but it's also changed the formats of news. So, because of the size of the screens, it's opened up uh, different kinds of content. So content that's much more snackable, content that's much more visual works really well. It's harder to read long articles. And, and while people still you know, consume on desktops, we're moving to a stage where the mobile will be the predominant way in which people consume digital news.
1: And the other thing I found absolutely bonkers was that, is it 28% of young people were getting their news primarily from social media? And this is the first time it's overtaken TV?
5: So younger people have very different ways of accessing news and it's quite passive really. I mean they're looking at those social media feeds because that's where they spend most of their time talking to their friends and news sort of is almost, they they almost bump into news incidentally through that process or if there's something really big happening obviously then that becomes the centre of the conversations that they're having.
1: I wonder, though, is that creating on the journalistic front more pressure to create these clickbait titles that evoke emotion and feelings so that you still capture that online audience and therefore, I suppose, the advertising money?
5: It's complex. I mean, I think that the type of content that is successful in Facebook in particular, but many social networks, is driven much more by emotion. So uh, Facebook algorithms respond very well to content that is emotionally engaging or has forces some kind of reaction in you and uh, so i think that is changing the nature of content itself and as a result of that we're seeing more content being produced like that by traditional publishers and some people are quite concerned about this because they fear that you know traditional fact-based information and during the Brexit campaign of course people said well where are the facts you know we want to know the facts Um, rather than a a lot of uh, videos that target your emotions and so big decisions are made by emotion rather than by fact so that's currently a really big argument is social media changing content in a way that's unhealthy for democracy.
1: I've got to ask you since we're a radio program (laughs) where does radio fit into all of this?
5: I think audio is really interesting because it, it, it hasn't been as affected as print or even television. Audio is just amazing because you can do other things. You can do cooking or you can uh, drive a car while, while you're listening. So it's, it's quite a unique medium. Things like television require your full attention. Your smartphone requires your, your, your full attention. So I think audio is is going to carry on being quite successful. Um I think what changes it is the way technology is now coming to the car. So the uh, ability to deliver on-demand content and live uh, internet availability into cars, which is happening in the States, but hasn't really taken off yet in the UK. I think these things are, are, are going to help to reinvent audio, help to reinvent the formats of audio. We've seen that in the States with some of these new podcasts like Serial. And uh, But in the most part, uh, what audio is in the UK is traditional linear programs delivered uh, on demand and i think that's going to change there's a whole whole areas of audio which which just haven't adapted in the same way as as videos adapted short form format sharing of audio finding audio clipping audio these things uh, are pretty standard in, in in video but we just don't yet have the tools on the internet to enable that sort of thing to happen
1: yeah, you're very right. I very much agree. Someone needs to come up with a better pla- podcasting uh, platform. Just, just,
5: just take the radio. You know, the radio, you know, is, is not as powerful as your smartphone in terms of, I mean, how, internet radios, for example, are really complicated in terms of finding your way around to open up the possibilities of, of on-demand audio. The smartphone is much, much better because those interfaces have a screen and the radio just has not adapted in, in this. Even, you know, interactive televisions have adapted more than, than, than radios.
1: Gosh, I just can't wait for it to happen. To be honest, the day when you can sort of share a small thirty-second clip on uh, Facebook or whatever—I think it's
5: amazing it hasn't happened. Really, in uh, you know, really effectively.
1: Watch the space. I think we've got a business idea here. <laughs> yeah. You had it here first. Now then, we've seen how science works, and then a bit about how the media works. But you know what? It's quite a big investment, isn't it? From start to finish, this could take years. So why do we do it?
11: It becomes quite obvious as to why science when you look back at all the advances that have happened. So I'm uh, Tom Zeeson. I'm in the engaging science team at uh, Wellcome Trust.
1: I was interested to talk to Tom about Wellcome because, well, it provides science funding for thousands of people across the world. It's not a government body. It's a charity and thus has no obligations to do so. Why, then, does it? Well, it starts with a chap called Sir Henry Welcome,
11: who was an American marketeer. He was born in in the Midwest, and from an early age was trying to sell products to to friends and family. I started out selling uh, Invisible Ink. I think was his first uh, Invisible Ink thing. Invisible Ink, uh, which was basically just lemon juice. So that was. I think he was sixteen when he started that, uh, and he came over to the UK in the eighteen eighties to found the Welcome Foundation, and Henry Welcome. Uh, was always very interested in the art and science of healing through the ages. Henry died in 1936, and in his will, he set up the Welcome Trust.
1: Because I think what's quite different about Welcome is that most people get their funding from big research bodies from the government, so EPSRC, STFC, whereas Welcome sits in this unusual sort of framework. Uh,
11: yes, that's right. So we we are a very large <laughs> funder of research that's non-government. We're independent. And we're not unique in that respect, but our funding supports uh, currently over fourteen thousand people in more than seventy countries.
1: Mm-hmm. And I suppose that brings me. On to my next question. I wonder, why science? Why should science be put on a pedestal among all the other things that this money could be used for?
11: Actually, Wellcome Trust is not just interested in science. We're interested in all kinds of research uh, related to health and well-being. But coming back to your question of why do we place science as such an important part of what we do, it's because we think that science is a great way of giving us insights into the way the world works, the way we work, it becomes quite obvious as to why science, when you look back at all the advances that have happened since 1936 or, or since the um, sort of scientific revolution and the, the improvements that's made to health and well-being.
1: But arguably it's not always been used for good things. I'm thinking the Harbour-Bosch process was used by the Nazis as a poisonous gas in the Holocaust, and then there's nuclear weapons. You've painted a very rosy picture of the use of science there.
11: Uh, Yes. I mean, I think anything can be used for bad purposes as well as good purposes. That's not really a problem with science. That's a problem with uh, humanity. And I don't think science is a a force for for good or evil. It's it's a way of understanding the world, understanding what potential there is there. But hopefully the majority of uses for it are beneficial.
1: And I mean, I suppose the other side of this is that science has enabled populations to grow. It's enabled us to develop cars, which then produce lots of greenhouse gases. And I read this great quote that man has survived millennia without science, but may not survive a mere two centuries of science with all these problems. In some ways, we're creating um, for ourselves, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense.
11: <laughs> uh, it, it does make sense. I, I think it's a very pessimistic uh, view of the world, because there's no question that there are problems related to scientific developments. Uh, there are more people around. They're living longer and using more resources. Um, they're also happier, healthier, uh, and able to sort of in- enjoy lives that wouldn't have been possible prior to science.
1: The future of science looks to be an interesting place. In the time that the naked scientists have been around, we've seen the advent of global warming and accelerated destruction of our natural world.
5: This loss not only diminishes the beauty and
1: diversity of the natural world, it also puts our own future in jeopardy. And 3D-printed guns.
8: So in this case, what's happening is that you're downloading a digital file that defines this object, in this case a gun, you send that to a a 3D printer, which literally builds it up till you end up with a gun.
1: But also a new age of physics.
8: We have discovered a new particle, a boson,
9: most probably a Higgs boson, but we have to find out which kind of Higgs boson this is. What are its properties
5: and where do they point to? Ladies and gentlemen,
6: we have detected gravitational waves. We did it.
1: That leads me to one question. What's next for science? Only time will tell. A huge thank you to all my guests this week. The programme was produced and presented by myself, Greer Jackson. The Naked Scientist will be back next week and we'll be taking on your science questions. You can tweet them in to at Naked Scientists. The programme comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the SDFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye from me and the rest of the Naked Scientist team.